chapter 3. Do turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, and we begin reading in verse 1. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, Three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Amen. Holiday Christmas party. And as the family had come together to celebrate Christmas with one another, their plan was to talk and to eat and to enjoy one another, and then eventually they would get around to opening presents. And so as the family talked and talked, the young nephew is becoming increasingly anxious about when his time is coming to be able to get all of his presents. And he was getting so anxious that he began to throw a fit. And so his mother took him into another room in the house and made him reconsider the consequences of his actions. And eventually, after he had that time to think over what he had done, she called him out in front of the whole family and asked him to apologize. And so looking very grumpy and still angry about the unfairness of not getting to open his presents, he said, I'm sorry. And so his mother said, for what? And then he said, standing there, he thought for a second, and then he says, for nothing, and ran back into his room. (laughs) Where he had to consider, as you can imagine, the rest of his consequences for his other actions. And he did not receive presents that evening at all. See, the lack of sincerity in his apology moved him from the opportunity of receiving the grace of his mother to being able to continue in his disobedience and the wrath of his angry mother. See, what's necessary in an apology is sincerity. And this is similar to our leaning on our salvation for the Lord. 
When we turn to God in sincerity, he hears our cry and he freely extends the, the mercy that he freely gives. And this is the display of the mercy that God is able to show to the Ninevites in Jonah chapter 3. And yet, unlike this little nephew at his holiday Christmas party, the Ninevites' sincerity towards the Lord in beseeching his face for forgiveness is freely given. And they receive salvation from their wickedness because they come before the Lord in a sincere heart. And as we begin to consider these things, let us first refresh where we are in the book of Jonah as we lead into chapter 3. And so as we've seen over the last few weeks, the Lord has called his prophet Jonah to preach against the city of Nineveh, that capital city of the Assyrian Empire that was the dominating empire of the day. And so instead of obeying, Jonah flees And because of his fleeing, he receives the discipline of the Lord in the form of a storm. And then the Lord provides salvation, not in the way that you'd expect, but through Jonah being swallowed by a great whale. And for three days and nights, he cries out to the Lord, proclaiming the Lord's salvation for him and his need to repent of his wickedness. And so because of that heart posture, Jonah spit out onto dry ground. And that is where we pick up today in chapter 3. See, in sharp contrast to what we saw a few weeks ago in chapter 1, now the call of the Lord comes again to Jonah, and his response is one of obedience. See, we also see in this chapter the great conversion of the vast city of Nineveh because of Jonah's obedience to the Lord. And from this, we're able to see a theme in this chapter. That when people turn to God and devote themselves to him, he moves in redemptive ways. And here in Jonah chapter 3, we see this in two examples. We see this in Jonah, in his obedience to the Lord and devotion to him, and the Lord's using him through that. And then we also see that in the people of Nineveh, as especially represented in their king. When Jonah and the Ninevites respond to the call of the Lord in faith, he moves in redemptive ways. The men turn their eyes to the God of the universe and ascribe to him right obedience and worship. And through that, the Lord freely gives salvation and moves in amazing ways that we cannot even begin to comprehend. And so today we'll look at three components to this redemptive story. We'll see this in the recommissioning of Jonah. We'll see this in the confession of the Ninevites. And then we'll see this in the relenting of the Lord from his anger. And so first let's look at the recommissioning of Jonah in verses 1 to 5. Again we'll read it. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into that city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. 
And yet, this time we see a difference. It's put in clear contradiction to chapter one. We see that the word of the Lord has come to Jonah a second time. And this call is the same that it's been to Jonah in chapter one and many followers of God throughout scripture. The call is to arise and go. And yet this time there's also a slight difference in this call. If we look back to chapter one, the word of the Lord tells Jonah to go out and call against the city of Nineveh for the coming judgment. And the word against in chapter one, verse two, is the Hebrew word all, which is a a preposition of a hostility. It means that this impending doom will fall upon Nineveh. The judgment that is coming is a hostile judgment that is falling upon the city. But now, in chapter 3, verse 2, we see a slight difference in the message. The message tells Jonah to call unto the city of Nineveh. And our ESV translation doesn't actually translate this nuance. In both cases, it's against. But the Hebrew word has changed from all in chapter 1 to ale in chapter 3. And I hope that you can understand that distinction through my accent. But this new preposition of ale, it's a, it's more special reality. It's directive. It's not the same hostility of the against Nineveh in chapter 1. But now Jonah is called to speak towards Nineveh, and this change should be seen in light of the transformation that has occurred in Jonah for the last two chapters. As Jonah has experienced the salvation of the Lord himself in being saved from the storm, and he spent time in the whale pondering the great mercies of the Lord and his salvation that was given to him, now the message of the Lord takes on this slight transformation. He's seen the salvation of the Lord. And so this new message, while it's still a warning of coming judgment for the people of Nineveh, also holds hope. There's an opportunity for Nineveh to be saved from their impending judgment, just as Jonah was saved from his judgment because of his disobedience. And so Jonah's call unto the people of Nineveh will present that opportunity for their redemption as opposed to a call against the city of Nineveh, which would be an inevitable marker of their destruction. And so continuing in verses one to five, we see that the response of the prophet now also has been changed. In his recommissioning in light of what has happened in chapters one and two, Jonah is now obedient to the call of the Lord. His display of the obedience of the Lord is the faith that the people of God are supposed to have. His actions as the messenger of God to a dark and wicked city is yet again another pointer towards the actions of Christ, who also was a messenger to a dark and wicked world that was entrenched in sin. And because of Christ's obedience, we understand that we also are to be carriers of the gospel to the world. We are the representatives of the Lord to the world around us, like Jonah and like Christ. And so we're supposed to have the same obedience that they had. See the nature of Jonah's response. Verse three says that he arose and went. And again, this is another comparison to chapter one when it says that he arose and fled. See, there's the similarity of the language again. 
The two accounts are comparing Jonah's disobedience and then his obedience, and it suggests that the conversion of repentance shows that the efforts of his movements towards disobedience are the same amount of attention and effort that's being put into his obedience now. A heart truly surrendered over to the Lord will demonstrate zeal. It will demonstrate passion, a heart postured towards action. When we were of the world, we were set on our sinfulness. And whether we were fully given over to the patterns of the world or we attempted to behave in a way that was acceptable and deemed okay, everything that we did was saturated in our sin nature. We could do nothing apart from Christ that was considered righteous. Everything that we did was an active movement away from the kingdom of God. But now that we are in Christ, every single thing that we do should be an action towards the righteousness of Christ. We must be fully surrendered, as we talked about in Romans 12 on Tuesday, active in our obedience to the Lord with the same type of zeal that we had towards our sinfulness when we were of the world. See, when we were of the world, we had passion towards our sin. We were zealous towards the ways of the world. But now, as Jonah demonstrates, we put the same amount of effort and more into our righteousness and our pursuit of the Lord because we know the goodness of his salvation. And so following the word of the Lord finally to the city of Nonah, to Nineveh, sorry, Jonah finally reaches his destination. It took him three chapters to get here, but he begins to call against it. And geographically, the city of Nineveh was quite a power to behold in that day. See, three chariots were able to ride across from each other on the top of its city walls. And these city walls ran for 60 miles in full circuit. And within these walls, there would have been a large amount of farmland, which would have accounted for a vast amount of livestock and herds that we are able to see later included in the repentance of the city. And so that makes the city self-satisfying. So this city of Nineveh is nearly indestructible in terms of its wealth, its defenses, and its self-provision. See, for the day, it's impenetrable. It's a city of great power. And now, we're given even a better understanding of why a single lone prophet would not want to wander into it, calling out the destruction of a foreign god. And yet, Jonah obeys the Lord. He travels a day's length into the city and begins to proclaim the message that he had received from the Lord. And again, this is the nature of obedience and faith. Jonah hears the word of the Lord and does so. When he is called to arise and go, he immediately obeys and he rises and he goes to Nineveh. See, this is the model of Christ. When Christ saw us in our affliction, he rose from his heavenly throne in order to enter into our broken world of humanity. He entered into our Nineveh in order to be the sign of our sureness of our separation from God, but the redemption that is 
available through him that leads to the kingdom of God. Jesus himself was the sign of our salvation, as Jonah is supposed to be the sign of salvation for Nineveh. John 14 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. See, Jesus, in coming to earth, is the sign of our coming kingdom. We have to look to him and hear the message that he brought in order to have access to the Father. But we know that by looking to him, we receive his glorious salvation. It's a good message that he has brought. And this is what the Ninevites do. They turn to him in obedience. See, in verses one to five, we see that Jonah's message stirs the hearts of the Ninevites and they believe. When the name of God is called out, people will believe. Jonah devoted himself to the Lord and so the Lord moved in mighty and redemptive ways among the hearts of the people of Nineveh. The Lord brings nearly a million people to their knees in belief of him. It's speculated that there were a million people in the city. And so the Lord has brought nearly a million people to his knees through the message of one man, Jonah. God has caused national revival in this chapter. The people turn from their wicked ways and seek the Lord by throwing themselves into the posture of repentance. They're fasting and mourning, crying out their sinful state. See, the movement of our God is immense. He is almighty. He's powerful. He is capable of doing things that we cannot even begin to comprehend by bringing even nations to their knees. He's capable of bringing the capital city of the largest empire in the entire world to its knees in prayer. And let me tell you, he's surely able to do that again. He's able to do that in this country. He's able to do that in the United States and in Russia and in any other nation in this entire world. He is capable of bringing redemption through the devotion of his saints. And so we would be amiss to not see application here. We see that the Lord uses devoted people in order to bring glory to himself in the turning of souls back to him. And so we, as the church, and the ones with knowledge and truth must devote ourselves to the proclamation of this message. We are the ones that hold this message of the gospel in this world. And so we are supposed to be the gospel witnesses of Christ to the world around us. Second Corinthians 9 says, through the testing of this ministry, you glorify God by your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and by the generosity of your partnership with them and the saints. See, Paul writes here that the ministry of the confession of the gospel of Christ is done out of obedience. It's a responsibility, it's a duty, a necessity for believers in Christ. See, when we're saved, we are given the role of being a gospel witness. It's not something that we can shirk or decline. We can't accept the gospel and say, I'll believe in Christ, but I'm not going to proclaim the word of God. That's not an option. See, through our obedience to the calling 
of the ministry to the gospel that we have been given, the Lord will work in wonderful ways. And so how could we not want to be a part of this mission? We see again and again in this book that when Jesus' witnesses devote themselves to the Lord, he moves in mighty ways. And so how could we not desire to be a part of that kingdom work? How could we not commit ourselves to the work of evangelism if we know that the Lord moves when his gospel is proclaimed? See, if we truly valued the souls of others and devoted ourselves to proclaiming the name of Christ to those who are lost, then we would be obedient to the call to arise and go to a broken world as Jonah is in this chapter. Verses 1 to 5 display God's movement in response to the devotion of his servant Jonah. But now, verses 6 to 9, we see the Lord move in response to the repentance of the people of Nineveh. And so let's consider these verses again. We'll read them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. See, what we begin to see in these verses is a holistic response to conviction. The people of Nineveh are set before their wickedness. It's proclaimed before them. It's there for them to see and they respond in grief. See, notice the extent of the confession of the people. The king himself puts aside all of his regalia. He raises himself up from the throne and puts himself in ashes. He orders all of the people of the land to seek the Lord's face in repentance. From the greatest of the city to even the livestock, There's a mark of total confession, full mourning in response to the weight of their sins. See, verse 6 says that the word comes to the Lord and he arises from his throne. We've seen the importance of the word arise again. And when the word of the Lord comes to someone, they act. When the word of the Lord comes to the king, he rises from his throne and he puts himself in subjection to the word of God. He believes what's been told to him. See, the weight of the wickedness of the people of Nineveh falls on the king so heavily that he forgets that he is even a king. He lowers himself to a place of humility and he sits in sackcloth and ashes, crying out to the Lord for redemption and salvation. See, that is a holistic purging of unholiness. It's complete in its removal of anything that is not of God. And repentance is a matter of life and death for these Ninevites. They've heard the cry against their city. 
The judgment is coming. And so they have to turn to God. Sin is horrifically costly, and they understand that. It holds weight that is damaging. Sin is unbearably consequential. And because of this horrible weight, there is only one who can lift it. There's only one who is able to overcome it, and that is Christ, our Savior. Every bit of sin has to be paid for because of its offense before the Lord. Every small sin has to be paid for by the blood and death of Jesus Christ. We must offer it up to him in faith with a heartfelt response to our wickedness like the city of Nineveh. We must cry out to the Lord like the people of Nineveh and Jonah in the chapter before for salvation from our wickedness. See, this should move us. Our sin should bring us to tears. We should mourn the realities of our sinfulness. And yet it slips from our mind with far too much ease. We downgrade its immensity. We forget its cost. When we lose sight of the heavy price of sin in our lives, it is far easier for us to give ourselves more to the patterns of the world because we have forgotten the marker of its unholiness. But imagine if we had to stand before Christ every single time that we sinned and watch him endure the suffering that it cost him. If with every single sin we had to stand and watch for long hours as Christ was whipped and beaten bleeding, and then led to a hill where nails were pierced in his hands and his feet. And he was forced to hang naked, suffocating before a crowd of jeering people. See, every single time that we sin, the cost is that. Every small ounce of sin, every time that we consider someone wrongly, that we think negatively about someone, that we maybe tell a story with just an ounce of falsehood, that is what Christ endures. And see, the Puritan writer and preacher Thomas Watson wrote, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. See, in order to truly offer a heartfelt repentance as the Ninevites, we must begin to detest sin. We have to understand the cost of our wickedness and we have to be repelled by it. We must forsake sin. Our response to it should be in the emotions of the Ninevites, mourning, fasting, crying out to God. It's repelling to know our waywardness. So much so that we must beg the Lord for his great mercy. So you imagine the crying out of the city in that day. Nearly half a million people for 60 miles crying out in agony, begging the Lord for salvation. They took sin seriously and the Lord relented from his anger. And so now, 
begin to consider your patterns of repentance also? Do you posture your heart in a way that takes sin seriously? See, we are called to remove our regality, cast off our unrighteousness, take ourselves away from the throne that we sit on in our own hearts and let ourselves be found with nothing before God except our faith in his salvation. See, the Ninevites, through this edict of the king, displayed something profound. They displayed that they should be found with nothing before a mighty God except their heartfelt response to crying out for his redemption. They were fully dependent on his grace. See, true repentance puts us in the place of sackcloth and ashes. It comes to terms with our sin and recognizes our need for our Savior's salvation. And yet we also are slightly different than the Ninevites. See, where they had to rely on the Lord for salvation without knowing that they had assurance and confidence, we do have that assurance and confidence. We know that our repentance is answered by God, that he has sealed our victory in Christ Jesus. His grace and mercy overwhelms those who believe. In Christ, we know that we have full joy in his righteousness. We understand the realities of our sin. We cry out to the Lord for forgiveness. We turn from our unrighteousness. But we have full assurance and confidence that we have been made white as snow. We have been saved. And Christ's righteousness is attributed to us. We have assurance in our Savior. But if you are here today and you've never accepted the Lord's salvation, you've never admitted your wickedness before God, and you may justify in your mind that you are all right, that you have time. But let me tell you, the call against Nineveh is the same call against you. This proverbial 40 days, life comes upon you and then it's gone. And so all people must turn back to the Lord. All people are unrighteous and in need of his grace and mercy. And so if you are here tonight and you've never surrendered yourself to the Lord and the free grace of Jesus Christ, do so now. The Lord is overjoyed when people turn to him and cry out to his salvation through Christ. See, the weight of our sin is not to be borne by us, but by our Savior who has died and taken the weight of sin upon himself. So turn to him. Let him take it on himself who has already done the great work of salvation. And this is something that we as saints are able to rejoice in forever and for all of eternity. And then lastly, in verse 10, we see the culmination of verses 1 to 9 in the relenting of the Lord from his anger. When men and women posture their hearts towards the Lord and they lift their voices to him and surrender, he moves in redemptive ways. Verse 10 says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. 
Now we see the good love of our gracious God. The Lord is merciful and ready to provide salvation for those who seek him. We know that our Lord has been working through the entirety of this account of Jonah that we've been talking about for the last few weeks to bring redemption to the Ninevites. He's been working through Jonah through both chapters 1 and 2 ultimately to bring to this point the salvation of the Ninevites because he knew that they would turn from their wickedness to him. And what might be our first thought in this verse is how the Lord has changed his mind. Verse 10 hinges on the Lord's relenting from this coming disaster because the Ninevites have turned to him. And see, there's an answer to the Lord turning and changing his mind in a way. We see this in two ways. We see the first answer in Jeremiah 18. He says, The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. See, the turning of a nation to God will save it from the destruction that the Lord has declared to bring against it because it is no longer marked by its iniquity. God's speaking against a nation is not false in its proclamation of judgment. He's not incorrect in saying that he'll bring judgment against Nineveh and then turning and changing his mind. We see that the message of destruction towards a wicked people will be relented when the Lord turns to them. And the Lord loves what is holy and glorifying to him. So when people turn in their hearts, they posture their hearts towards surrender towards the Lord, they are now marked by the holiness of a pursuit of the Lord and the Lord freely gives his mercy to those who seek his face. And this is partly why he sends the prophets. See, even in the Lord's constant calling in the Old Testament against people for his destruction, there is always a measure of grace and mercy. There's hope for a remnant. There's hope for those who turn to him. The Lord's salvation is always there. When people turn to God, he moves in mercy He relents from his anger and abounds in the love of a father towards his prodigal son. The second answer to the Lord changing his mind is that we also know in the book of Nahum that destruction does eventually fall upon Nineveh 150 years later. Their turning to God only relented his anger for a short time because they did not continue in their heart posture of repentance. They turned to the Lord in sincerity here, but that sincerity left them. And we're reminded in this of the Lord's perfection. Those who turn to the Lord will be able to partake in his glorious salvation. But when hearts lose their focus on the salvation of the Lord, when they forget what he has given to them in his great mercy, they will be marked by the unholiness that they had before his salvation. So in hope and in wrath, we see that the Lord always installs his holiness. 
So verse 10 is good news for us this evening. Because we, like the Ninevites, are given access to the mercies of God when we are made pure in him. God relents from the disaster that he brings against Nineveh, and they receive salvation in him. Because all who turn to the refuge of the Lord and posture their hearts according to his great holiness will receive salvation from their deserved punishment. And this is only through the work of our Redeemer, our great high priest, Jesus Christ. God is gracious in his judgment because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. See, our sin against the Lord, when we turn to him in salvation, it doesn't go away. The cost of our sin doesn't simply dissipate. It's not just erased from a white page and the page is made white again. The cost of that sin is put on Christ, who is willing to bear it. The wrath of God falls heavy upon a man, Jesus, so that the mercy of the Lord might fall on those who are made new in Christ. And so what we see in verse 10 is that this mercy comes to the people of Nineveh because they have set their hearts in the right posture of action in their repentance to the Lord. Because they turn to him in their hour of agony, the Lord repeals his judgment. He turns from his wrath And when the people devote themselves to the Lord, he moves in mighty and redemptive ways for their salvation. And so even now, consider those whom you are sure will be subjects of the wrath of God. Consider now those who you know that will be given over to the penalty of their wickedness should they not turn and cry for the salvation of the Lord. And see, in Jonah 3, the Lord is capable of saving them. The Lord saves the great city of Nineveh because it calls out to him. And he is able to do the same work in any person that we know that is marked by their unrighteousness right now if they turn to him and cry out for his salvation. We also must be known by our righteousness. We must proclaim the gospel of Christ and have a zeal for the things of the Lord. We must intercede on behalf of those who we know have not received the salvation of the Lord. And so we boldly raise our petitions to the Lord. We know that he delights when we bring our cry to him and we know that he delights when souls are one for the kingdom of heaven. And so we must pray for the salvation of lost souls and nations and have confidence and assurance that when people devote themselves to the Lord, he moves in redemptive ways. And so we do not lose sight of the kingdom as we lift our voices to the Lord and beseech his name so that many, many souls might be able to rejoice with us in heaven for all of eternity. And so in sum, We see that the Lord moves when people cry out to him and they posture their hearts in obedience. Our God loves to move in redemptive ways. The salvation of the Lord is wonderful. And so together tonight, we are here to marvel at the amazing things that the Lord has done in Nineveh and the things that the Lord has done in our lives 
and the things that he continues to do. The Lord is moving in the world today. He's moved in our lives and he's moved as far back as Nineveh and he's moving tonight by saving souls for his kingdom. That is very good news. When Jonah obeys his recommissioning, the Lord moves him towards the salvation of the people of Nineveh. And when the people of Nineveh turn their hearts to the Lord, they give themselves over to mourning, they cry out for salvation, and he relents in his anger towards them. The Lord sees the heart of people turned back to him, and he provides redemption. He relents from his anger. And so we do two things in response to this. We pray boldly, knowing that the Lord hears and sees our hearts directed in holiness and bringing about rescue to the lost. And second, we take seriously the weight of our own sin and cry out for repentance for our unrighteousness. Do not take sin lightly. Let it be bitter in your life. Posture your hearts towards the, the righteousness of Christ. But in both of these, tonight, be full of the joy of our King. Know that you have received salvation cried for. We've received the same salvation that the Ninevites have as the Lord relents from his anger. And so praise the Lord who has saved your life from the pit. He's lifted you from your mourning in the ashes to be able to proclaim and worship him for all of eternity. And we will do that. We will be together in the kingdom of heaven proclaiming the goodness of our God who has saved us from his anger. He has spared us from the wrath that we deserve through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we worship him boldly tonight. Let's pray.